welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, if you would please open your Bibles to... uh... Acts chapter 8, and we will resume our study there. Uh, I would like to take a moment to thank Trevor Gudeman for uh, filling in for me last week. Did a fine job stepping in for me uh, to preach. And, uh, you know, we have several young men who are skilled in teaching God's Word. Um, a spiritual giftedness that uh, we begin to discover, normally begin to discover, Uh, through their leading Wednesday evening devotionals. Then after a time of observation, uh, you know, we might ask them to step in uh, for adult Bible class on Sunday morning or even pulpit fill from time to time. Those Wednesday opportunities, we refer to Wednesday as family night. Uh, We call it family night. Uh, We Those will resume on September 13th after Labor Day. And I sincerely thank those men who respond to that challenge of leading prayer, leading devotionals for our Lord's body. Teaching, it isn't easy. It isn't easy. And uh, But leading a devotional is a great place to start. It's a non-threatening place. Uh, Also for our ladies, uh, teaching kids club. Uh, Vacation Bible School, Javonda Weiler, uh, Josh and Javonda should be back in a couple weeks. Javonda Weiler has also been helping in youth group along with Josh in teaching some lessons. And uh, these are opportunities uh, where we usually begin to discern uh, who has been gifted with the ability uh, to teach. Also next week, we are going to be rolling out some brand new materials, uh, devotional materials uh, for fall ministries, and I'll be challenging our men and our women uh, once again to stretch themselves in these capacities. Um, If teaching interests you, talk to me. You know, the elders do kind of want to know theologically where you are and uh, what your... uh, what you believe, and though all, uh, surely not all are called to teach, uh, it's, it's not just me. I can assure you it's not just me. Uh, more people have to be active than me. And uh, the true, uh, that same thing is true of evangelism, of evangelism. Uh, we discovered our last time together in Acts chapter 8 how Philip had become uh, just one of many thousands, 10,000 or more, who due to persecution in the city of Jerusalem, uh, they had been scattered about in Judea, even out as far north as Samaria, and uh, they were preaching Christ. They were preaching salvation, God's glorious kingdom to come. And today as we continue this passage at verse 14, uh, which has concentrated its exploits on on just one of those people, just one of these uh, who Scripture refers to as Philip the Evangelist, we will learn even more. Uh, During our last time, it'd be two Sundays ago, we observed what every teacher preacher, or anyone else, male or female, who engages in the work of evangelism does, uh, we replicate the same message first proclaimed at Pentecost uh, by those original 12 apostles. We don't invent new ideas of our own that are new. Uh, We never strike off on any course that diverges from or dilutes the gospel, uh, dilutes apostolic teaching. One of my uh, uh, professors at Dallas Seminary, he's very, very famed professor, gone to be with the Lord now, uh, Howard Hendricks would repeatedly caution uh, his students saying that if it is true, it is not new. And if it is new, it is not true. 
So preaching does not create new ideas about God, but is faithful and true only as far as it restates and replicates what is original to scriptural apostolic teaching. You know, we, we sometimes refer to this, this correct teaching or right teaching with the term orthodoxy. Uh, a doctrine is orthodox when it conforms to what the original apostles teach as preserved on the pages of Scripture. And the Bible is, is our only litmus test. It's all we have in our possession to discern whether a claim is ortho, which means correct, and doxy, which means doctrine. Correct doctrine, orthodoxy. When we declare something to be biblically orthodox, uh, we mean to insist that it fully harmonizes with what the original apostles had taught and what they believed. You know, sadly today, there exist uh, many denominations who've cemented in their names uh, the word orthodox, suggesting we are orthodox, but they're not actually teaching doctrine that is orthodox. Still, a, a posture of grace we, we must uh, have. It's, it's vital through acknowledging that uh, when we speak of terms uh, with the word orthodoxy or, or with, with, with beliefs that determine whether something is orthodox or not, uh, that term is usually applied only to beliefs that are historically recognized as essential to being Christian. This coming Wednesday... We're going to discuss an ancient yet modern heresy known as Arianism. It it denies the full deity of Christ. Uh, That is an error historically recognized by all Christians of all time to be so egregious that it is damning. It's serious. Therefore, Arianism is unorthodox. By comparison, you know, a disagreement about whether local church government should consist of one pastor overseeing a deacon board uh, versus a governing body or a board that consists of multiple elders, that is not a debate over orthodoxy. You know, a local church governed by one pastor overseeing a deacon board, it, it's not damning, all right? We would say it's wrong. It doesn't conform with what we see in Scripture. But but it does not diminish the nature of Christ's sacrificial atonement or affect forgiveness of our sins uh, that is only found in the shed blood of Christ on the cross. If you were in an adult Bible class this morning, uh, you listened to Mike as he talked about a term called preterism. Preterism is a discussion over how much of, of Scripture prophecy is fulfilled? You have some that are full preterist, uh, which just believe all prophecy that is in Scripture is already fulfilled. I think he said, yeah, that, that one's not right. And, and there are some who would uh, suggest that none of it's going to be fulfilled, or already fulfilled. It's, it's complete futurist. Well, that isn't right either. And in between there, there is... It's easy to recognize in the Bible that there is some prophecy that is fulfilled in in Christ and some that is not, like his return, the return of Christ. Uh, So he he talked about how there's this wide spectrum uh, among preterism, partial preterism, they would call it. How much is fulfilled? And you have to discern it from the pages of Scripture. Normally, in those circumstances, there's disagreement it doesn't necessarily mean that someone is a heretic. It isn't usually, it can be, but not usually um, a discussion over what is orthodox. So, so we can extend grace uh, on many beliefs uh, without, uh, without catering to heresy, uh, but there is one faithful teaching to one true gospel, no matter what church you or I attend, that can never be altered from apostolic teaching. 
The reason that I've subtitled today's message uh, for Philip as the orthodoxy test is because when an evangelist teaches, when we go out to declare the word of God, it must never violate the nature or the substance of the one true gospel uh, as thousands of evangelists now like Philip have been going out and operating beyond the immediate supervision of the apostles. They've been driven wide into the countryside. uh, And and this pattern of expansion of the gospel and people going out, it's only going to continue as we study the book of Acts. Broader and broader, uh, the kingdom will grow Uh, yet it always remains tethered to where it first began. You follow me? It's always tethered to where it all began through the apostles. Uh, Luke today, who is is the writer of Acts, Luke today will reassure all of his readers that an evangelist like Philip never steps outside of orthodoxy. What Philip has been teaching and what his audience has been believing, at least most of his audience, minus Simon, remains under apostolic authority. The Holy Spirit himself is going to testify and confirm in our passage as we read now verses 14 to 24 of Acts chapter 8. Luke writes, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of the Samaritans. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the attention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity." But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that none of what you have said may come upon me. Now, I realize that that Peter's crossing swords with Simon, it is the most intriguing part of our text. But it mustn't become, uh, or mustn't distract us from the thrust of, of this passage, which contains the reason for the apostles' visit and this baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, Peter and John did not come to Samaria uh, with a purpose to confront Simon. That's more incidental to our passage. It occurred once they got there, but they weren't going there to meet Simon. They had another a matter in order. What is more crucial is our seeking an answer to the question as to why the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon the Samaritans. You know, this is the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. There is only one who wasted no time falling on 3,000 on on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. And where God displayed no hesitation while pouring out His Spirit, we also get no indication of any delay among the thousands of other conversions that have occurred over the past two years, Pentecost, until the stoning of Stephen, roughly two years. 
So has the Holy Spirit become suspicious of the Samaritans? Or or hesitant about inclusion of the Samaritans into Christ's church? No. No. Jesus himself, we learned this two weeks ago, uh, Jesus himself already welcomed Samaritans uh, in John chapter 4. They had believed in him during his three-year earthly ministry. Did God then, did he lack confidence in Philip's preaching? Or is he uncertain about the content of the gospel that was preached by Philip? Again, no. No, God is omniscient. He he knows precisely the substance of what Philip preached, and he knows precisely exactly what each and every individual, individual Samaritan had believed. What then should we make of this? It's a perplexing conundrum. Caused confusion for centuries amongst churches, uh, some even claiming that the baptism of the Holy Spirit remains a subsequent work of grace at some point after the person believes in Christ. You know, we have to admit that uh, as news took some time to travel to Jerusalem about Philip, and uh, for Peter and John to, to hitch a ride up to Samaria, uh, the, the Spirit's baptism had to be delayed you know, a, a minimum of a few days before falling upon the Samaritans. Boy, th- this is a hard text to understand. Nevertheless, by God's grace... This is not the only passage in the Bible uh, that provides us information about the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So we must heed additional apostolic instruction uh, to answer our question today. I'm going to begin with a quote from a theologian named Ben Witherington III. You remember him from our study through Ecclesiastes. And uh, I brought up that he is a Wesleyan Methodist who is recommended in his commentaries for Ecclesiastes and for Acts by Ligoner Ministries. Now that is a conundrum that's hard to understand as well because they're so far on different sides. But, but the scholarship of Witherington is what Ligoner is impressed with in these two particular commentaries, Ecclesiastes and Acts. And uh, he's been very good in Acts as well, very well studied. Um, Concerning the diversity of when the Holy Spirit fell in these various settings early on in the book of Acts, Witherington writes this, quote, Whatever conclusions one draws on the above matter, it must be recognized that here, water baptism is administered prior to the Spirit falling on the Samaritans. Whereas, in Acts 10.44, that's the Gentile inclusion uh, with Cornelius, Witherington writes, whereas, Acts 10.44, in 10.44, belief and Spirit precede the administering of water baptism. And in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch later in Acts Chapter 8, spirit and water may have been received virtually simultaneously. In short, then writes Witherington, Luke portrays a variety of patterns of initiation and conversion and does not try to insist that any one was normative or always characterized the early church. Unquote. In short, What Witherington correctly observes is that when studying the various occasions of which the Holy Spirit fell, as recorded in Acts, most often the Holy Spirit had fallen upon people before water baptism. That was the day of Pentecost. Sometimes it appears almost simultaneous, and at least on this one occasion. This one time uh, that we're looking at in our text today, water baptism 
uh, actually preceded the Spirit's baptism. It's varied. It's varied. Uh, the record in Acts is therefore not given to us for a rigid prescription of how that sequence happens all the time. It's not the purpose. Just a, just a simple reading of the book of Acts uh, reveals that early on in the church, early in the church, the Spirit fell in many diverse ways and at differing times. It will not be until decades later when the Apostle Paul will provide for us a doctrinal explanation uh, when the receiving or the sealing of the Holy Spirit occurs today. In contrast to Acts, Paul does supply a doctrinal statement about sequence, which we can reinforce today using additional passages from the Bible. There are many places that speak of it. So we aren't left with just Acts to figure this out. One example, it was from Ephesians chapter 1. We read it together earlier, verse 13. Paul states quite plainly, listen closely to this. Paul states quite plainly, and this is several decades after Pentecost. In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You know, we all know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, so Paul clarifies that once there has been a hearing of the truth, followed by a believing of that same truth, the Holy Spirit seals. The Spirit seals, we sometimes refer to that as baptism of the Spirit as well, after hearing and believing. Well, how long after? Days after? No. That, that simply can't be. And, and the text in Ephesians 1, uh, the grammar does not allow for that. The same letter of Ephesians tells us that those who are predestined are saved by grace through faith. So at the moment of faith, we are saved. It was the reformers who correctly asserted that Christians are saved uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, right? The five solas. It is the faith in Christ which saves us. But where does our saving faith come from? Well, saving faith comes through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And we find that in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where it reads, quote, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. That pouring out is the falling of the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're told in Scripture that faith saves us. But then we're also told in Scripture that it's the washing and renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit which saves us. So which is it that saves us? Is it faith? Or is it God's Spirit? Or is it the Holy Spirit which washes and renews our dead heart by granting us the gift of faith, thereby making us alive to God, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And this had been long promised in the Old Testament uh, at the dawn of a new covenant revealed in Ezekiel uh, 36, verse 26, where we read, quote, uh, God says, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Yeah, yeah. Though at one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 assures us that the righteous shall live. The Hebrew there actually means will have life. The righteous shall live, how? By faith. If your heart is alive to Christ today, it is due to the Holy Spirit giving you that faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You can't be saved by faith, yet be void of the Holy Spirit who gives that faith. You can't be saved by the Holy Spirit and be void of faith. It's just illogical. You must have both together. And though there were variances by the Holy Spirit and how he fell early on in Acts, the balance of Scripture and apostolic teaching repeatedly reiterates, reveals it is impossible to have faith without God first giving you a new heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit of promise. For this reason, um, it remains the historic understanding of Christianity through the centuries that at the time of regeneration uh, and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God grants faith. It's the Spirit who gives you faith. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 22 summarizes this nicely. It says that God has sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. If you have faith in Christ today, it's the Spirit working in you. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you remain confused, I know that's a lot. If you remain confused, just realize that you cannot have faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and yet still lack the Holy Spirit who gives you that faith. To believe that that God's Son Jesus was crucified for your sins on the cross and saving you from, from bearing God's judgment and penalty yourself and to embrace that through faith, it's a consequence of God having changed your heart, making you anew and alive to Him. Listen to this uh, one more time now, uh, because uh, some charismatic circles often get this wrong. Listen to this very closely, Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This word is God's assurance to us by faith. It's a done deal. You've been sealed if you have faith in Christ. You don't need me. Anyone else to come upon and, and, and lay hands on you so that you can receive the Spirit of God? I, I, I don't control that. God gives His Spirit freely by grace. Simon the sorcerer, he isn't going to be given the opportunity to charge people for it. You know, Simon uh, here eventually wants to be the, uh, the Spirit's gatekeeper. I'd like to buy that. Peter and John are doing, can I, can I set up a payment plan? I'd like to, I'd like to control that. Be, be a good deposit. You make some good money. Good money controlling that. If, if you want to hear a little more about uh, Simon's issues here, I'm not going to spend a, a third separate week on this passage on Simon. Uh, he doesn't deserve the attention. But, but, um, 
I am, because Mike is going to be gone for adult Bible class next week, what I'm going to do is next Sunday at 9.15, I'm going to have a lesson on Simon the Sorcerer and what we see here and what the church historically has said about Simon, and we can field some questions then. So next Sunday at 9.15, we'll have a discussion about Simon the Sorcerer, and then when we come back in here at 10.30, we will move on then with the Ethiopian eunuch. And our final in this series on evangelism. During this one time scenario in Samaria, the Spirit lagged a few days until the apostles arrived. Uh, the hard question is why? Why did the Holy Spirit delay? I have two responses for you. Number one is what I have titled today the orthodoxy test. The Holy Spirit's delay was to provide a situation, circumstances, affirming that Philip had been teaching the exact same thing, the exact same gospel message the apostles had taught. The scenario is set up for this. In other words, this was not something new being started by Philip in Samaria, it is the same old gospel. The arrival of Peter and John, along with their laying on of hands, illustrates that Philip was building on the same foundation that was laid by the apostles, Christ alone, the cornerstone. The text reveals Peter and John did not arrive bearing new instructions or supplemental instructions, or nor did they at all increase clarity about the gospel. It wasn't as if they needed to supplement Philip's gospel uh, that he had already taught. Again, Bill Witherington states, quote, verses 15 to 17 indicate that Peter and John did not attempt to start over with scratch uh, for the Samaritans. Which would have, if they had, suggested that the work of Philip was invalid or defective. Instead, says Witherington, they are not said to preach or to baptize or to perform miracles for the audience that Philip had previously approached. They don't arrive at town and say, hey, now let me tell you what Philip was lacking. There's no record of that at all. The work of evangelism, preaching and baptism, had already been done by Philip the Evangelist. And every bit of it, the Holy Spirit testifies, had been legitimate. The Holy Spirit's going to put the stamp of approval on it in the presence of the apostles. The apostles come only to confirm that Philip continues our same work. The Spirit falls upon those who believe, revealing to everyone that what Philip had been teaching is orthodox. His work is in complete harmony with what the apostles had already been teaching in Jerusalem. Folks, this is exactly what we do today. And I expect this event recorded by Luke is for our benefit here today. If Philip had evangelized in error. The Spirit would not have validated, nor would he have placed God's seal on his work. What do you think happens today when a, when a preacher deviates through proclaiming a different gospel, a false gospel, a tainted gospel, a a diluted gospel. What do you think happens? I'll tell you what happens. Nothing happens. Our Lord's Spirit will not renew a heart or place His seal upon any gospel that has strayed from orthodoxy. What did the Apostle Paul say about those who preached a different gospel, a distorted gospel, contrary, Paul says, to what we have preached. 
It's with very strong language in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes, that man or that woman is to be accursed. They are to be cut off from God and from the church. That is how serious accuracy is. The Holy Spirit will not place God's seal or stamp of approval on on any defective gospel. It's It's a waste of time. How about um, <clears throat> these other, you know, roughly 10,000 Christians? Many thousands we know. How about these other thousands of Christians who are also recorded as, as spreading out and preaching the word throughout Judea and Samaria back in verses 2 and 4? Uh, Christians scattered all, all over the place now. Um, do we get any indication that Peter and John had to stop by and vit- and visit each and every single one of them as well? No, no. Lay hands on each and every one throughout all of Judea and Samaria. Find all these 10,000 or more people out there and hunt them down. No, no. Um, Verse 25 will reveal next week, the apostles make their way back to Jerusalem. And then Philip goes about now, preaching separately by himself to an Ethiopian eunuch where the apostles never do become involved. Philip baptizes him, leaves leaves him, and the Ethiopian eunuch heads off to Ethiopia. What happened to validate Philip and Samaria, it's not portrayed as a pattern that had to keep on replicating itself every single time somebody gets saved. It was about Samaria. About Samaria. Which brings us to the second reason Peter and John had to visit Samaria. The Holy Spirit delayed a few days. Peter and John arrived. Uh, they did so to prevent that historic schism which, which had existed for centuries between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's to prevent that schism from infiltrating the church. Let me explain. Peter and John go to both welcome Samaria into the church and to be recognized by them as apostles by the Samaritans. This is why the Holy Spirit taps the brakes. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit says, "Yeah, wait one minute here. Hold on, we're going to have a clarification in Samaria. You Samaritans are welcomed into the church by faith. This is not going to become a new movement by you Samaritans that you build upon Philip. The foundation of the church must not only remain orthodox in correct teaching, it must also always remain apostolic. John MacArthur writes, quote, This was a transitional period in which confirmation by the apostles was necessary to verify the inclusion of a new group of people into the church. Because of the animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans, It was essential for the Samaritans to receive the Spirit in the presence of the leaders of the Jerusalem church for the purpose of maintaining a unified church. The delay also revealed the Samaritans need to come under apostolic authority, writes MacArthur. Then he cites the same transitional event occurred when the Gentiles finally get added to the church. That will be Cornelius in chapter 10. What had been the traditional behavior of Samaritans in regard to Jews and their theology? What was their traditional behavior? Well, traditionally, the Samaritans, who were half Jewish, bloodline was half or a portion Jewish. Uh, Traditionally, Samaritans had been raised by their parents to believe, um, well, uh, we stay over here and we worship on this mountain over here, and the Jews stay, 
and they worship in Jerusalem. That is how all of them had been raised. Is that attitude going to fly in the church? No, 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 no. No, generations of Samaritan separatism will stop here. It will not be perpetuated in Christ. What did Jesus tell the Samaritan woman at the well? He said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4 here is fulfilled in Samaria. The Spirit waited to baptize the Samaritans until Peter and John arrived uh, so that these Samaritans could recognize, as do we at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, that we all come under apostolic authority as it is revealed in Scripture. Christ who is the bridegroom in Scripture, he, he, he will not separately marry a Samaritan church and a Jewish church and a Swedish church and a Russian Orthodox church nor a Chinese church. No, Christ is not a polygamist. There is only one bride of Christ, his church, and we are all going to be attending the same wedding feast together. We have one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one church, one baptism. We are all in this together. Ephesians 4 verse 3. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Ultimately, the story here with Philip, it reveals that when we branch out, we don't branch out. We, we don't start our own new thing. That's Mormonism. That's Jehovah's Witnesses. We enter our community as evangelists, and we not only remain orthodox, we always view ourselves as an extension of Christ's single work of redemption, apostolic at its origin, doing the same work. We don't start anything new. If it's new, it isn't true. As we uh, begin in just a moment to transition to the Lord's Supper, you know, we at Port St. Lucie Bible Church recognize that our, our roots, our foundation, our spiritual foundation, uh, they're apostolic. We believe the same thing as Peter and John. And symbolically, we are going to recite together uh, a second century summary of the Christian faith. Uh, it's called the Apostles' Creed. That'll be before we distribute the bread and the cup. It was not written by the apostles, but it was written by others as a brief summary of what the apostles taught. That's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. And if you believe in Christ as is portrayed in the words, uh, we welcome you to commemorate the faith that we share together in the shed body, uh, the body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but just one more practical application of our text before we do. By our Lord's brother Jude, half-brother, uh, we are charged to defend the faith that is once for all handed down to the saints. And though I doubt any of us would to start the gospel, it is possible for us to adapt it or minimize it where it is no longer the gospel. 
It can happen that, you know, in an effort to make the gospel easy, make it accessible uh, to as many as possible, we want people to come in, uh, it, it is possible to omit elements of the gospel um, that might cause the Holy Spirit to stop short of regeneration and renewal and saving. You know, we know that, that Christ is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. That's what Scripture calls Christ. People don't get it. They do not get him. And we, we tend to want to help people get it as easy as possible. Um, but if we, if we fail to mention how our, it is our sin, our own individual sin, that separates us from a holy and righteous God? Or, or if we rush in headlong, give, granting full pardon and forgiveness without any call to repentance and commitment to Jesus Christ, no one can be saved through that gospel. It comes up short. Some preach a gospel that's not apostolic, expects no change in behavior, no holiness in life, nothing new. Uh, the language of God's offer can become vague. And rather than revealing how it is your sin that will cause you to spend eternity in hell by a just and righteous God, um, and telling people that they need to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ alone, the only Savior, that's a stumbling block, he is the only Lord and Savior of the universe for the Chinese, for the Vietnamese, for everyone. Sometimes we stop short of the gospel saying things like, uh, you know, friend, all you need to do is just uh, come forward and you know, come to the front, come to the altar and get right with God. I've said similar language at points. Uh, you do need to get right with God. But merely telling people you need to get right with God, that's not the gospel. It's unorthodox. That, that alone falls far short of the gospel. I, I've heard evangelists soften the punch. Rather than God's son, his only son had to die uh, bearing the penalty for our shame in his body on the cross, uh, or because your sin is so offensive to a holy God, he will never accept you as you are. We hear things like, well, you know, God accepts you as you are. Just say this prayer. Just say these few words, follow me, recite following me in these few words, and just accept Jesus in your heart and everything will be fine. That too is not the gospel. I've seen it done with adults and children. You know, we had an associate pastor a couple of years ago. He went to pastor a church up in Ohio, a wonderful young man. And uh, he used to handle our VBS. And we have a great VBS, still do. Wonderful, the gospel gets preached. And, uh, but he would go around from time to time with his children and visit different churches to see what is being, what's, what's going on in the community. And... Uh, he stopped in for vacation Bible school with his kids and he saw that without any scriptural preparation or discussion of sin, the pastor calling dozens of children to the front and asking them plainly, if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, raise your hand. That's it. None said no. So he extended his hands over the children and prayed, declaring them all saved. Our associate, he returned so upset. And Gerald doesn't get upset easy. He returned so upset. And not a single one of those small children left with any inkling of understanding of how their sinful life has separated them from a holy God or how holy and how righteous God is. It's a different gospel, folks. We've got to do a better job with our children, all of us. Um, I have a message. Sorry, I went a little long today. 
but this is just very important. We're going into fall ministries in September. I was given a message from Alistair Begg this week about training up your children in the way he should go, he or she go. Very powerful message. He pulls no punches. It's actually kind of mean in it. Not like Alistair. I'm going to put that on the prayer email coming up this Wednesday. Everybody here, whether you have children or not, needs to listen to that message for the sake of our children and for the sake of our country. Uh, I will roll that out this week on Wednesday. Uh, if you don't get the prayer email, let me know you can get it. Or if you just don't want another email coming in, let me know. I will text it to you. Um, but we have got to, for the sake of Christ, do a better job with our children. Um, give me a few things rolling out here for fall ministries um, starting next week. There, there has to be a whole lot more to the gospel in confessing Christ as your Savior than appeared in that church that Gerald visited that day. Yeah, I've seen the gospel, uh, gospel tracts, little things we hand out, like these, that people have written. There's not even a gospel in it. They don't even tell you how to get saved. It's, it's just, we've got to do a better job. So in evangelism, we never want to preach a gospel that falls short of the gospel. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, and your spirit. In your beloved Son we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.